If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We'll look at verses 22 to 32 this morning. Text is also there, printed as usual. Uh, Lately, we've been talking a lot about some uh, really wonderful, surprising aspects of Jesus' character, like gentleness, like his gentleness and his humility and his servant's heart. Uh, There are many who in this world would consider those traits to be weaknesses. Uh, But we should not make the mistake of thinking Jesus to be weak. Jesus is strong. He's strong enough to bind the prince of demons and to plunder his whole house. So in the words of Marvel's uh, Hulk, Jesus is the strongest there is. Um, Kids might appreciate that. His is the full might of the the Holy Spirit of God, the power of Yahweh himself. And this morning, we're going to consider how Jesus is stronger than the devil and what that means for people who come to him for salvation and what it means for those who don't come to him for salvation. So, uh, So let me pray, then we can read the scripture. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of your son as we consider this word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A demon-oppressed man was, who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. For how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, um, you know, it might seem strange to say this in our culture today, uh, but angels and demons are real. Uh, The consistent testimony of Scripture is that spiritual beings, like angels and demons, they're real. God himself is a spirit, the most high among spiritual beings. So spiritual beings are real. Uh, Sometimes spiritual beings manifest in this world in audible ways and visible ways and Uh, material ways, Uh, when the devil appeared in the garden as the serpent. You know, he was visible and audible. Uh, 
uh, when Yahweh's voice came from this burning bush in the wilderness, when the angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses or Joshua or David or Elijah, when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and then to Mary. Uh, These are times when spiritual beings have interacted with people in this world in tangible ways. Usually, spiritual beings don't manifest uh, so tangibly in this world. That doesn't make them any less real or any less significant. God's creation consists, uh, from the beginning we have this testimony, it consists of both heavens and earth, both visible and invisible realms and creatures. And the Bible says, There are powers and principalities at work in the world. And since the fall of humanity in the garden, people have languished under under the oppression of invisible, usually, uh, spiritual forces of darkness. God created humanity uh, to rule at his side over everything he had made, to extend his kingdom from the garden out over all the face of all the earth, to bring the order of love, the kingdom of God, the order of love to the whole world. But... The serpent, the devil, that spiritual being, he deceived our first parents. He seemed to be promising the world to us. We already had the world. Literally, we had the whole world given to us freely by God. But instead of staying true to God and faithful to his word, instead of then filling the earth with this glorious life in communion with God, humanity subjected itself to the devil's rule. So that death entered and spread throughout the world. We put the devil's shackles on ourselves, which are now impossible for us to remove from ourselves. So the serpent, the devil, Satan, came to be called the prince of this world. The prince of this world, and his power is death. That is, his power is in keeping people separated from the God of life. And even though... He and his demons might rarely manifest themselves, uh, you know, materially, visibly, tangibly. The spiritual forces of darkness have had a great, constant influence on all civilizations. In more obvious ways, you know, when people in ancient cultures worshipped gods like Baal, the Canaanite uh, fertility god, or like Baal Zebub, uh, who was the, the, you know, you could say the Lord of the Flies is a way to translate that. Uh, the deity of the Philistines. They were worshiping real spiritual beings. They were being influenced by spiritual forces of darkness in their religious activities. And ultimately, these you know, gods like Baal or Beelzebub, uh, they were representations of the ultimate rule of the devil over the peoples of the world, the prince of this world over sinners. Uh, Maybe today in our culture we don't worship spiritual beings so overtly, but the powers and principalities are still at work everywhere, capturing the hearts and minds of people, capturing them in death, in life apart from God. People in our country, for example, will um, often be possessed by money. Sacrifice everything for money. Well, when money is worshipped as a god like that, it's called mammon. It has a god's name in the scriptures. And that's a spiritual being. It's an entity of some sort that represents the devil's ultimate rule, the prince of this world. So we give ourselves to mammon. It enslaves us. It makes empty promises, but ends up destroying our lives. 
And as long as it rules over us, it keeps us separated from the life of the, uh, with the one true God. So, you know, whether you're talking about people building altars to Baal, temples to Baalzebub, or people building skyscrapers on Wall Street, throughout history, the devil has had his universal influence. He has kept the minds of people enslaved to darkness, the scriptures say, and he has kept people blind and deaf to God's truth. He has kept people mute, unable to confess God's glory. The prince of this world is a tyrant. He's an oppressor. He's a destroyer. He is the true enemy of God's kingdom. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Other human beings are not really our enemies. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what we find in the Gospels, particularly here in Matthew's Gospel, uh, is a concentrated battle between the kingdom of God and the spiritual forces of darkness. When we talk about spiritual battle, you see it happening in the Gospels, between God's champion on behalf of his people and the prince of this world, between Jesus and Satan, basically, or Jesus and demonic forces. So that battle, as it's recorded for us, give you a you know, context for where we are in Matthew's Gospel, that battle began with a decisive victory for Jesus and the kingdom of God. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, you know, at his baptism, God uh, revealed Christ, the Trinity revealed himself. God uh, poured the Holy Spirit on Christ and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And the very next thing he did, the, he, the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness where he did battle with the devil. He was tempted by the devil. And it was there that he recapitulated humanity's stand against the devil. He redid it. He redid humanity's stand against the devil and against his rule. So the old man, the first man, Adam, had faced a serpent in a lush garden full of provisions that were all available to him. The, the new man, Jesus, faced, faced the devil um, after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And he was hungry. But the, the old man, Adam, had been tempted with a pretty piece of fruit that he didn't really need. The new man, Jesus, was tempted with bread that would keep him from starving to death. Jesus resisted, resisted the temptations of the prince of this world, even when he was offered all the kingdoms of this world. Jesus had the only bread he needed. He held to his father's word. His father had told him, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He held to that. He needed nothing more. He remained faithful to God just by clinging to his word. And so Jesus showed himself to be the true Lord true Lord of heaven and earth, the king of God's good kingdom, utterly free of Satan's power and therefore able to free others from Satan's power. Now he can just go about breaking the chains and prisoner, uh, chains of the prisoners and, and liberating slaves, which is made visible and audible and tangible and material in the many exorcisms that he performed during his earthly ministry. So the synoptic gospels, uh, that's Matthew and Mark and Luke. That uh, They're called synoptic because it means sort of with the same view. 
Uh, and as you read through the four Gospels, you realize those three Gospels are very similar. John takes a different angle. He doesn't talk about exorcisms as much. He shows that uh, uh, you know, the Pharisees are sort of possessed by de- demonic um, powers and agendas. <clears throat> but the Synoptic Gospels, like Matthew, share this feature in portraying Jesus as casting demons out of people, Jesus saving people, Jesus releasing people from demonic influence, Again, this seems very strange to us. You don't read about things like this in history books. Uh, there, there was so much overt demonic activity recorded in the Gospels, so many conflicts between Jesus and the devil and his demons. Jesus' presence was a unique thing in the, in the, at that moment in history, and his presence is bringing about a unique thing. It's bringing them out into the open. The demonic forces are given it all they've got in a futile last-ditch effort. God's champion has already defeated their champion. So now all the spiritual forces of darkness are in a frenzy. They're doing their thing. They're demonizing, plaguing, oppressing, possessing people. They're influencing people to do them as much harm as possible. They're trying to keep them in the dark, blind and deaf to God's truth. They're trying to keep them mute, unable to confess the glory of God. And this was how their power was literally manifested in this man who was brought to Jesus, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So the champion of God's kingdom can set people free from all the power of the devil. Compared to 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness, overcoming Satan, this kind of thing is a walk in the park for Jesus. He never has had any difficulty delivering people from demonic influence in in the Gospels. He never even breaks a sweat. He usually just speaks a word, and it's done. He's filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit who is eternal life, the Spirit who is divine love. And the devil's power of death and separation from God is just no match for that. It seems the people were beginning to realize something about this. It says all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? Maybe their eyes were beginning to open. Maybe their tongues were being loosed to confess his glory. Maybe they were being set free from the power of the devil as they became able to recognize and celebrate the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he came to do. But then that's cut off. The enemies of God's kingdom do their thing. Trying to keep people in the dark about God's truth. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They literally demonized Jesus because they were predisposed against him. They're they're prejudiced against him. They can't deny the goodness of what he just did. They can't deny that he's just done something miraculous and unheard of. They can't deny the result of Jesus' work. So they condemn the motive. They condemn the kingdom and the power and the glory of Jesus. They condemn the spirit of God's love at work in Jesus. It's the same kind of thing the enemy of God's kingdom has always done. Like when the serpent impugned God's motives in the garden, implying that God wasn't loving. He's ultimately self-interested. He's not interested in the good of other people. Not really. 
And in a few verses, Jesus will call these Pharisees a brood of vipers. Sons of the serpent is what that means. They are spiritually blind and mute. They are unable, they're unwilling to see or to confess the glory of Jesus. And even more, they were blinding others to the glory of Jesus or seeking to do so. They're just doing what their father had always done, showing themselves to be the brood of vipers, sons of the serpents, and enemies of God's kingdom, just like their father Satan. So that's the way John talks about it in his gospel. <clears throat> so first, Jesus very easily shows that uh, their line of thinking here is uh, it's not very good thinking. It's actually kind of ridiculous. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So it would obviously be counterproductive for someone working by the power of the devil to dramatically undermine the power of the devil and expose it for weakness. That's the stuff of silly conspiracy theories. And then Jesus goes on to uh, expose their, maybe their hypocrisy, and <clears throat> says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So, you know, if the Pharisees, which, you know, there's some record of them having authorized exorcisms, if they've authorized exorcisms, they've got to apply the same standard of judgment, the same criticism to themselves. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So we just looked last week at Matthew's quotation uh, from Isaiah's servant songs. Uh, and he, in Isaiah, and what Matthew quotes, he says, Behold my servant. God is saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. This is all language that, that becomes visible and audible in Jesus' baptism, referring again back to the, the baptisms. It's all the same language. As the Father declared his pleasure for his beloved Son and poured the spirit upon him from above, and what happened right after his anointing with the Spirit? He did victorious battle with the devil. So Isaiah says in that same section in the servant songs, you know, all this is tied together in Isaiah's prophecies as well as uh, here in the gospel. In Isaiah 49, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. So God himself would wrestle his people free from the devil's power. God's spirit-anointed servant, God's son, come in the flesh, would take the captives of the mighty, and he would rescue the prey from the tyrant. Like David said in Psalm 18, which Kevin read from our Old Testament reading, when David called out to Yahweh to save him from his enemies, then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up.
from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down thick darkness under his feet. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So the kingdom of God came upon the enemy when Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, came to set people free. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So, so John Calvin said, Christ attacked Satan in open combat, threw him down, and left him nothing remaining. In the wilderness, Jesus had bound the strong man. He proved the devil powerless over him as the champion of God's kingdom. The unstoppable power of Jesus is simply his faithfulness to God, his steadfast love which endures forever. His love, uh, the Song of Solomon says, uh, love is strong as death, as fierce as the grave. The power of Christ's faithful love is the very power of resurrection, which will always have the victory over the devil's power of death. Now, now the gates of hell don't stand a chance against Jesus and his kingdom. The devil can't keep Jesus out of his domain. Nothing can stop Jesus from plundering Satan's possessions, which are people. The devil's power to keep people separated from God, that power falls before the power of the Lord Jesus. So now he's just ransacking the devil's house. Delivering people from spiritual oppression, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute. So Paul says in Colossians 1, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So just think for a minute about this blind and mute man who was brought to Jesus. Uh, You know, if you're physically handicapped in some way like this. In any way, really. You might look at healings like this, and the first thing in your mind is you just wish that Jesus would do the same for you. You know? You long for physical restoration. You long for physical wholeness. And it is true, according to the Scriptures, that someday all those who belong to Jesus will be healed physically, will be given resurrection bodies that will reflect divine wholeness and health, and vitality, whatever that means. We can't even imagine what it means. But there's a resurrection body awaiting those who belong to Christ, and that day is coming. But the circumstances around this healing are very specific. It's not just a physical problem this guy suffered from. The source of his inability to see or speak was spiritual. The source... it. His physical problems are the effect of demonic influence and oppression. And that, that source, is what's being attacked by Jesus. That is emblematic of the universal problem of humanity. Under the rule of the prince of this world, under the oppression of the cosmic forces of spiritual darkness, the devil would keep all people in the dark 
spiritually. All people blind. He'd keep us blind. But the champion of God's kingdom can open our eyes to, to the truth of God. The devil would prevent our confession of faith. He'd keep us mute. But the champion can loosen our tongues, not just to speak, but to sing God's glory. The devil and his servants, like mammon, or like the self-righteous Pharisees. They're strong, yes. Their power to keep people blind to God is strong, stronger than we are. But Jesus is the strongest there is, and he delivers his people from spiritual tyranny, and he issues a warning in the strongest possible terms to any who would continue to oppose the kingdom of God. Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no spiritual Switzerland available to us here. Jesus does not leave open the possibility of neutrality. You either belong to the domain of darkness or you belong to the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. You either join Jesus and recognize and celebrate and promote his kingdom, or you prove yourself to be his enemy, just like the devil. Those are the options that he gives you. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Uh, that could, that's, it's really hard for us to figure this one out because, you know, Jesus came into the world and went to the cross to forgive sins and to reconcile people to God. He's all about forgiveness and he gives it freely to anyone who calls on his name. But there's a sin that will not be forgiven. He says... And it's the sin, you can articulate it in various ways. It's the sin of rejecting his salvation as if it were demonic. Rejecting him as if he were demon-filled instead of spirit-filled. The sin of denying his kingdom as if it were the devil's domain. The sin of calling evil the work of the Spirit of God through him. The sin of repudiating and maligning the goodness of the God of love. So, uh, you know, Isaiah... Chapter 5, he says, Woe to those, you'll be miserable. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who make that exchange. Jesus is talking about knowing, willful, continuing rebellion against him where you not only refuse to come to Jesus, but you actively seek to undermine him and participate in the devil's own spiritual oppression of others. So John Calvin, uh, again, said that those persons sin and blaspheme against the Holy Spirit who maliciously turn to his dishonor the perfections of God which have been revealed to him by the Spirit, in which his glory ought to, to be celebrated. Those who turn the only medicine of salvation into a deadly venom. 
And Tim Keller says, sin against the Holy Spirit is the rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior. Since it's faith in Christ alone that brings forgiveness for all sin, rejecting Christ is the one and only sin that cuts you off from all forgiveness. So Jesus says, even if you speak against him, you'll be forgiven when you come to him and ask for forgiveness. Some of us here used to speak against Jesus. I used to speak against Jesus. Maybe that has you worried that you've committed this unforgivable sin. Maybe you didn't, you weren't aware of it, and now you're in big trouble because of it. Well, the Apostle Paul himself used to speak against Jesus. He says in 1 Timothy, using the same kind of language that we find here, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent an enemy. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So if, if Paul can say, when he was going from town to town, hunting down Christians, persecuting them to have them thrown in prison, when he was standing there watching with approval as Stephen was stoned for his testimony to Christ, if Paul can say that he previously acted ignorantly in unbelief when he was doing those things, when when he blasphemed Jesus, when he persecuted the church as an insolent opponent of the kingdom of God, and he was a Pharisee, but that he found mercy and forgiveness of his sins, then I don't care who you are, you can find mercy and forgiveness of your sins when you come to Jesus. (laughs) What Jesus must be talking about here then is such an opposition to the Spirit of God such a contempt of his grace that it reveals a hardness toward God that will never change. And here's the really fearful thing that we find in the scriptures. God God himself is the one who solidifies people, who hardens them in their willful rebellion against them so that they don't change. Uh, Like he hardened Pharaoh's heart against the people of Israel. If If you choose this path, if you knowingly devote yourself to being an enemy of Jesus to opposing the work of God's spirit through him, then God will lock you into that state of hardness, that state of death, so that it will be impossible for you even to repent and come to him and ask for forgiveness. It's like Paul said in Romans 1, if you embrace the devil's lie, if you make that exchange, God will give you over to those lies utterly and forever. He'll give you what you want. If you so align yourself with the devil's power, God will let that power take you. What do you do with a fearful warning like that? You fear God. And you pray and you go to Jesus and you beg him for his mercy and you ask him to set you free from the spiritual forces of darkness, from the rule of the prince of this world. If you can still do that, you better do it. If you can do that, Jesus will forgive you and set you free from all the power of the devil. It is well within his power to do that. Believe it. Join him in his kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved son, where all are beloved children of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us not only new eyes to see and new ears to hear, but um, give us new hearts and new tongues to confess the good news of your Son, to confess his goodness, 
We were born into this world of sin as sinners, as those under the devil's dominion, willing slaves, and your enemies. But you, Lord Jesus, by your faithfulness to the Father, by your willing sacrifice of love, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you've set us free from the devil's power, from fear, from death. You've set us free for a life of communion with God. This is all our hope and joy and peace in this life and the next. Help us to gather with you. Help us to speak well of you and of your kingdom before others to make the good confession because yours is a kingdom of love and forgiveness for any who would have it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.